The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for 23 years from the 30th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land of the Lord that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve or worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And just as Jeremiah foretold, Along comes the servant, King Nebuchadnezzar. He lays siege to the city of David, to Jerusalem. He conquers the city. He pillages the temple. He removes the things that are in the temple that are meant to glorify God, and he takes them to his own palace and to his own temple of pagan gods. And then as we learned last night, he goes one step further. He takes the very best and the brightest of Israel, 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. They're castrated and they're marched a thousand miles away from their homes. In a very short amount of time, these young men have seen their lives completely change. They've gone through a series of complete upheavals. They're living in the midst of calamity that they never could have dreamed for themselves, and now they find themselves away from home, a home that was left destroyed, that was left pillaged, a temple that, was, that laid in ruin. And here they find themselves in exile in a land that is not familiar to them. Not only is it unfamiliar to them, but it is openly hostile toward them. And it's here that they begin the process of indoctrination. They have their names stripped of them. They have their culture stripped from them to be brought up in a new way. And this is where we continue the story in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, 
showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, as we learned last night. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. Bel Belteshazzar. I was practicing this, and I still can't get it. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. If you like writing in your Bible, if you like taking notes, if you like highlighting and circling things, circle this part in verse 8, because we're going to come back to it. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the very first year of King Cyrus. So we see here, they've been brought into this land, they've been stripped of their names, they've been stripped of their cultural identity. And notice here how there isn't an uproar, there isn't pushback when they are given new names. Because they know full well, my name is not something that needs to be defended. I don't need to defend my own name from dishonor. There's no glory that's attached to my name. There's no holiness that's attached to my name. It's merely a name. Even my cultural identity, this, this certain set of ways in which we live, those are things that, that are a part of who I am, but I am not rooted in these things. My identity is not rooted in these things. But notice, they finally have pushback when it comes to the food that is offered to them. They are offered the king's food. And the king's food, this, these, these aren't just the choice cuts of meat. This isn't just the best food that they have to offer. This is food 
that has been blessed and offered to the pagan gods. And so when you partake of this food, you're partaking in the exercise of, of, of extending holiness and worship. It's a posture of worship. It's an act of worship to the God of the Babylonians, to the false gods of the Babylonians. It's food that has been blessed by the Babylonian priest and has been presented to them. And when you partake of this, you're honoring their gods. And this is when Daniel says, that's where I draw the line. And he explains to the official, we, we can't partake in this. You don't understand, and I, I'm not sure that I could necessarily explain it to you, but we can't do this. You can change our names. You can change our lifestyle. You can re-educate us. We can become re-acclimated to a culture that we were not familiar with, but I will not do anything that dishonors my God and glorifies a different God. Because in this moment, Daniel has an unwavering fear, not of man, but of his creator. He remains resilient in his faith. Why? Because he does not fear man. He fears his creator. It is a holy and glorifying fear and honor and respect that he has for the one who created him. That's where his faith remains. And so often we can, we can look at Daniel and it's easy for us to say, wow, what a man of faith. And when we say something like that, you maybe uh, have heard that in the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Being a man or a woman of faith means, oh, they have such great faith. They have such strong faith. But what, do, like, what does that mean? Or when you're going through trials and tribulation, when you're, when you're experiencing calamity in life, have you, do you ever have those conversations with people? And they're just like, oh, well, have you prayed about it? You just need to have more faith. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I've always struggled with, what does it mean to have more faith? How do I get more faith? Like, with, I'm, when I'm going through tragedy and heartbreak, do, how do I make my faith stronger? Like, what is the spiritual gym I go to to get stronger faith? And it's like, when life really sucks, and it sucks a lot of the time, do we just have to go like... I need to make my faith stronger. Stronger faith. The reality is it has nothing to do with the strength of your faith and everything to do with the strength of the object of your faith. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong your God is who you place your faith in. Does that make sense? Why is Daniel able to remain resilient in this time? It's not because his faith is strong. It's because the one that he has placed his faith in is strong. In Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17, it says this. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Be, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You see, Daniel, hundreds and hundreds of years before this, this scripture in, in Peter was written, Daniel pushes back. But notice here how he does, he does so with gentleness and respect. 
when the food is offered to them, he doesn't slap it out of their hands and say, no, you can't make me do it. He doesn't throw a tantrum about it. He's not even disrespectful in it. He leads with gentleness and respect, and it goes on saying, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's the, the part that's hard for us to understand. It is better if it is for God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you are living faithfully for God, don't be surprised when you face opposition. If you are living faithfully for your creator, don't become discouraged when you face opposition. Don't be discouraged when you find that you are living in the midst of a culture that is adamantly and vehemently against you. Not merely intolerant, but anti-Christian in many cases. Don't be surprised when you face this opposition. But going back to verse 8, what did Daniel do in the face of opposition? Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Here's the key to Daniel's resilience. He had a predetermined resolution. He decided ahead of time what he would and would not do. He had predetermined, he had decided ahead of time, before he was even captured, before his life was completely flipped upside down, he had determined, he had resolved, he knew what he would do in the face of calamity and what he would not do in the face of calamity. And what he would not do is he would not compromise. He would not compromise. We are exiles living in a world and a culture of compromise. And if you want to have any chance of remaining resilient in your faith, it's going, it's going to require you to predetermine, to decide ahead of time what you will and will not do in the face of opposition because it's always going to be easier to compromise. Compromise is always going to be the easier route. Sin is always going to be the easier route. Sin at times is going to look better because it offers you something. It offers you joy. It offers you happiness. It offers you satisfaction. But all of the things that it offers you are temporary. And if we are constantly rooting our happiness, if our happiness is dependent on things of this world, your happiness and your joy will always be temporary because the things of this world are temporary. Your feelings and your emotions, if we're constantly basing them off of our circumstances, our circumstances are always going to change. 
you are never going to be in full control of your circumstances, but you will always be in control of how you choose to respond to those circumstances. You can't control what happens to you. Daniel and his friends did not choose this for themselves. They had no control over what happened to them, but what they did have control of is the resolve of what they would or would not do. And we know what it, we, everyone in here understands what it, what it looks like and what it feels like to give in to compromise, to give in to temptation. After I graduated high school and I moved back to the States, and I attended Point Loma Nazarene University, a Christian university. And so if there was anywhere that I'd, I should have been safe from calamity or opposition or temptation, it should have been there, right? And yet I found myself in a season during college where because I, had, I hadn't predetermined my values and what I would and would not do, I allowed compromise in my life. I allowed myself to enter into a relationship that was not healthy. I allowed myself to not just be tempted, but to completely give in to sexual sin. And it was a season that I lived in. It was a season of compromise. And it was easy for me to do the right things and say the right things on Sunday mornings. Because I was still attending church. I was still attending chapel. Soon I would begin volunteering at the church. Why? Because I got really good at, at, at producing a version of Christianity that I found would be acceptable to most people. I could put on the mask on weekends. I could put on the mask on Wednesday nights, but the rest of the week, that was for me. I became what, what can be referred to as a cultural Christian. I gave in and I compromised to cultural Christianity. And this cultural Christianity means, oh, well, I attend church on, you know, there's Easter and Christmas, obviously. you got to attend for those. And maybe two or three other services throughout the, like, oh, when camp comes around, I'll go to camp. I'll go to spiritual emphasis week. But the rest of the year is for me. Because there's a world that I'm living in, and there are things that are happening in this world, and it's so much easier for me to live like the world than to live differently. Why? Because I just want to fit in. I don't want to create, create ripples. I don't want to rock the boat. And we don't decide ahead of time what we are going to do. And so we compromise. It's easy to compromise. And it's easy to go along with culture. And after this season of sin that I had lived in, it, 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 it brought me to a space of, if I could describe it as rock bottom, I would say it was rock bottom. I was spiritually dead. Why? Because that's what sin does to us. Sin brings about death. Death is the inevitable result of sin. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, he says, for the wage of sin is death. He also tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, because there is a standard for salvation. There is a standard for eternity with him, and the standard is perfection. And the bad news of the gospel is none of us can meet that standard on our own. We can't. 
Why? Because we compromise time and time and time again. We compromise with the promise of fulfillment, with the promise of joy, with the promise of something that I can put my hope and my trust in. But for as long as I am putting my hope and my trust in things of this world, it will yield imperfect results because this world is a world of compromise. And so we compromise ourselves. We compromise our values because we didn't take the time to create a firm foundation in which to become rooted in. And my season of years of compromise, because I hadn't taken the time to pre-decide what I was going to do when I was faced with sexual temptation in a relationship, it left me broken. It left me in ruin. It left me in a space of spiritual death. And it wasn't until I was drowning that I finally reached out in surrender and said, God, I've been trying to live life the best I knew how. But turns out I'm an idiot. I don't know how to do this well. And in 2014, I made a decision that would change the trajectory of the rest of my life. I was baptized. It was an outward expression of an inward condition of, God, I'm, I'm done with the compromise of life. I'm no longer going to be compromising. And I entered into this new season of, I'm making decisions. How am I going to respond to circumstances before the circumstances arise? How am I going to deal with the storm before I'm in the storm? I am no longer going to wait until an emergency is happening to come up with an emergency plan. I am no longer going to wait until I am in the face of temptation, in the midst of temptation to determine how I am going to react and respond to temptation. And it radically changed the way that I thought and the way that I processed information. And it wasn't perfect, and it's, it continues to be a learning experience for me. But one of the most kind of jarring experiences that I had since then was the next year, 2015. I got to go work at, at Forest Home, a camp down like near in the, in the Big Bear area. And it's there that I met my camp crush. I, I told you about her. Her name's Taylor. She had been working there uh, for a long time. And I thought she was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen in my entire life. And she thought I was a tool. So it was great. Match made in, in, in heaven. But... Throughout that summer, we got to know each other better, and there was, and there was this, this mutual tension and this mutual attraction that we had, and we started having these conversations of where, where I sat down with her and was like, look, I really like you, and I want to have you in my life, and I, I want to take you on a date. When we're done here at the summer, when we've done all the camps, I want to take you out on a date, and we continued with these conversations, and then one day we were sitting by the, by the lake just on this bench, and I, I was in this position where I knew I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision of how I was going to respond to uh, temptation before temptation was even a part of the equation. And so we're sitting here and we're just looking out at the lake and I, I look at her and we make eye to eye contact. We're looking deep into each other's eyes. And I didn't, I didn't have a different, uh, more like, like better way to express this. And so I look her in the eye. We're, we're, we're sitting there, it's a tender moment. And I look at her, and out loud, I say, I will never have sex with you. (laughs) 
Right? That was kind of her response a little bit too. That's what I said. You don't have to clap for that. It's weird. Yeah, let's get vulnerable here, okay? I said that. Why? Because I know myself. Because I know my natural proclivity, my natural inclination is toward compromise. And I knew if I wanted to have any sort of real meaningful relationship with this person, compromise could not be a part of this. And I didn't have a more strategic way to communicate that. Essentially, to be able to communicate, I have predecided that I am going to honor and glorify my creator. I am going to honor him with my body, and I am going to honor him with my affection. And so the best way that I could communicate that was looking into this girl's eyes and saying, I will never have sex with you. And then two weeks later, we went on our first date. But what was this? This, for the first time in my life, I had predecided, predetermined, and there was something about saying it out loud. I will not defile myself. I will not defile you. I will not dishonor my God in that way. I drew the line for the first time in my life, and it changed everything about the dynamic of that relationship and the way that we continued to pursue each other through a dating relationship, and God has continued to bless that in beautiful, beautiful ways. That was my first and most jarring experience with what that looks like. So I can maybe imagine a fraction of what Daniel was feeling in that moment with the threat of death, under the threat of death of saying, I will not defile myself in this way. You can change my name. You can change my name. That doesn't dishonor God. You can re-indoctrinate me. You can re-educate me. You can teach me your language. You can teach me my, your, your culture. But do not offer me food that has been consecrated to your pagan gods. I will not dishonor myself and I will not dishonor him in that way. I will not compromise and go along with culture. And the calling is the same and the standard is the same for each and every one of us to not compromise and go along with culture. We cannot be cultural Christians. We cannot be part-time Christians when we have a full-time enemy who is against you. When we have a full-time culture that is against you, we don't have time for part-time Christians. We don't have the luxury of part-time Christianity. God does not want to be compartmentalized in your life. God has no interest in being a part of your life. He is everything to you or he is nothing to you. There is no gray area because there can't be a gray area. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. You guys might, might recognize this story, uh, story. It's the story of the wise builder and the foolish builders. And you have the man that builds his house upon the sand. It's a soft, shifting foundation. And that's what he becomes rooted in. He, he lays that foundation of sand and he builds his house. He builds his life upon it. And then there's a second man who comes and he finds a good, sturdy, there's bedrock. There's a sturdy foundation. And upon that foundation, he builds his house. He builds his life. And then storms come. 
A storm comes and it completely knocks over, it decimates, it destroys the house that was built on the soft and shifting foundation. But when the winds and the rains and the waves come and they crash against the house that was built on a firm foundation, it remains standing. Notice that the man who built his house on the firm foundation wasn't saved from the storm. It doesn't mean that there aren't still going to be storms that come against you. It means that in the midst of that storm, you can still remain firm. Why? Because of the foundation. Because what you are standing on matters. Therefore, it says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. If you want to live with resilience... It means that you have to have a fear of God and not a fear of man, a fear of God and not a fear of culture. It means that you need to build your life on a foundation of truth and not on a foundation of compromise, but it is going to require something of you. It's going to require surrender because it is a daily standard that we have been called to. Romans 12, chapter, or chapter 12, one through two, Paul says this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect will. You will be able to attest to this, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And maybe you've heard that before. You've heard about God's will. All throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, we read about God's will and living according to his will. But what is his will? Going back to what we were talking about last night, how can you know what God's will is for your life if you don't have a basic understanding and a foundation of who God is? I can have an intellectual understanding of him, but real faith, the mark of real faith is life-changing. Is there life change that's occurring in your life? Is there intimacy with him? Not just have you read about God, it's do you meet with God? Do you spend time with God? Is there intimacy with God? Because again, you can't be a cultural Christian in the same way that I cannot be a cultural husband. I can't express love to my wife once a week. Say, babe, I love you so much today. That marriage is not going to last. And for as long as it's kind of hanging on, it's certainly not going to be healthy. It's not going to be thriving. And yet we approach God with that same level of, look, what's the least amount of effort that I can put into this and still get into heaven? That's how we approach that relationship. What would it look like, ladies, if you had a guy who was interested in you and on the first date, they're like, look, I just need to know up front, what's the least amount of effort that I can put into this relationship 
for you to not break up with me. There wouldn't be a second date. I hope, anyways. I know, some of us are really lonely. Okay, but, but it, would, it would be this space, and yet we approach God with the same thing. What's the least amount of money? What's the, not money, but time. What's the least amount of resources? What's the least amount of affection that I can offer and still have the promise of salvation? Oh, there's so much there that we're missing out on. Because God has a will for your life, but it requires a daily sacrifice and a daily choice to live according to his will. But how can you live according to his will if you don't know what his will is? This is what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the week. This is going to be a cornerstone to what we're going to be seeing throughout the book of Daniel. You first need to know what his will is. His will for your life, let's simplify it. Let's make it really simple. God says in scripture, he says, be holy because I am holy. The one who has called you to be holy is holy. He says, that's it. Holy, coming from the Greek word agios, means set apart. God is essentially saying, live differently. My will for your life is to live by a different standard. A higher standard. Not just a better standard, the best standard. That's what it means to be agios, holy, a different standard, a different calling. Live according to his will. I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard this, it was a common saying, a common phrase that I've heard in in a few different sermons where people will tell us that the safest place that you can be, there's no safer place that you can be than the center of God's will. There's no safer place you can be than the center of God's will, which sounds really encouraging. It sounds good. Like, put that on a coffee mug. That's encouraging. That's what I want to see in the, in the beginning of the morning. That's what you're going to put on your Instagram post. There's no safer place to be than the center of God's will. It sounds great, but it's misleading. How do we know that? Because we very clearly see Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego living in the center of God's will. There's nothing safe about where they are. Who's the most perfect example of what it looks like to live at the center of God's will, to walk at the center of God's will in all of human history? Jesus. Do you remember what happened to him? There's nothing safe about living at the center of God's will. So don't fall into the misconception that there is no safer place for you to be than the center of God's will. But be confident in knowing that there will never be a more significant place for you to be than the center of God's will. And it begins and ends with obedience, with your obedience. Every day that you wake up, your responsibility for that day, for what it looks like to live according to God's will, is your obedience. Why? Because that's the only thing that you have control over. That's the only thing you have control over. You don't have control over your circumstances. You don't have control over the end result. But the end result is not your responsibility. Obedience is. Surrender the end result to God. And commit yourself to obedience. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder that we have in the book of Daniel. Thank you for the reminder that we have of what it looks like to to live resiliently. And living resiliently begins with the decisions that we make before calamity, before destruction, before our circumstances around us change, before our lives are flipped upside down. We want to have confidence in knowing who holds 
us in the palm of his hand. There's a confidence that we have. There's a hope that we have. It has nothing to do with the strength of our faith, and it has everything to do with your strength and your goodness. And we thank you for that reminder, and we pray for the opportunity that we have throughout this week and so far beyond this time that we have to share together to be able to express that and practice that and encourage one another in doing so as well. It's in your name we pray this morning. Amen.